Amen. Lord, that is our heart, that our lives do belong to you. Lord, where would we go without you? How could we live day by day without having intimate fellowship with you? We thank you, Lord, for that privilege. We thank you, Lord, that we can know you now, but we long for the day when we will see you face to face. Lord, I pray as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Again, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. May man decrease it, your spirit would increase it, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Again, if you didn't get a Bible, raise your hand, you're going to need one. Turn to Deuteronomy 19, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Anybody else need a Bible? Raise your hand. All right. Well, those of you, whether you've been coming or not, I'll just give you a quick catch you up here. Moses is continuing his farewell address to Israel. The children of Israel have been wandered in the wilderness. An entire generation died because they disobeyed God. And Moses was not going to be moving on with them as they're about to enter into the land of promise. So what he's doing is he's sharing his heart with them. He's preparing them to enter into all that God had for them. And I love Moses' heart here because this is truly the heart of a pastor, the heart of a shepherd. Because even though he smote the rock in anger and he was not going to be able to enter in, he still had a burden to reach out to that next generation. The word Deuteronomy means second loss. It's the second giving of the law to the next generation. Now the first ten chapters, those of you who are here, he reiterated what had already happened. He talked about the previous generation, the rebellion they fell into. First, he talked about the deliverance out of bondage and God's hand being upon them and manna falling from the sky and the the pillar of, of the cloud and the pillar of fire that led them by day and by night. They followed under the cloud. They watched for God's hand. And then he also recorded, though, the rebellion in Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, them getting to the to the edge of the land of promise, and then because of the giants in the land, them refusing to go in. They, they saw their circumstances, and they heeded their circumstances over the Word of God. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have ever done that before? Amen? Where the Word of God is so clear, but our circumstances are right in front of us. And that's why it's so important that we be in God's Word every day, because we get amnesia, don't we? We forget what God's Word said, and if we don't read it, and then all of a sudden something happens, and we panic, and we forget that God is truly faithful and in control. Well, for the generation that had got to the very edge of all that God had for them and missed out on it, the price was pretty heavy. They all died in the wilderness. An entire generation, they just marched in the wilderness. An 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march. And when that entire generation had passed away, now this next generation is about to go in. So he's given them those 10 chapters of review of what had happened. In the next rest of the book, he prepares them for what's going to happen as they enter in to the new land. So what, would he, what did he tell them? First he told them that as they moved into the land of promise, as they prepared to go into this, to this new place, that they needed to realize the blessings of obedience. That if you obey God, the blessings follow. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Amen? Hard thing for us to understand sometimes. that We, we think that God sometimes is a no-fun bummer God who doesn't want us to have any fun. But sin is something that will harm us. I often relate it to having my five-year-old juggle with knives or something, right? He might think it's really fun, but I know better. And I know that in the end there's going to be some lost fingers or, or worse. And so I look and I see it from a, a parent's perspective. 
And God sees our sin from a heavenly and a godly perspective. And he knows that what we're doing is we're juggling with knives. We're playing on the freeway. We're doing things that are going to bring us harm. And so God said, obey me and your life will be fruitful. Obey me and you won't have to go through the consequences of sin. And too often we disobey and the consequences come and we want to blame God. God, why did you let this happen to me? We'll talk about that more in the text. So he told them, walk in obedience and God will prolong your days in the land of promise. In chapter 12, he told them there's only one true way of worship. There's no other way. So he said, when you get into the land, you wipe out all the other idols, you tear down all the, the statues, you tear down everything, every place where they worship foreign gods so you might not be tempted to worship them. In chapter 13, we saw what God thought of other religions. He told them, if somebody tries to entice you away to worship an idol, what were they supposed to do to them? They're supposed to stone them to death. How does God th what does God think about other religions? Now, I know it's not politically correct today, but here's the reality, you guys. Buddhism and, and the Muslim faith and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, and all, it's all from the pit of hell. Is that pretty direct? Uh, it is. God said it's wrong. And we say today, oh, we have to have multiple freedoms. And we have to let people, you know, if I was president of the United States, I would outlaw every other religion. They're all against the law as of today. There it is, right? I would be president in about a week because I'd get impeached, right? But we often are trying to, be, to reach out and let people feel comfortable with a lie. And Moses said, look, if you go into the land and they're trying to drag you away to serve some other God, you put them to death because that's not something to play with. And we as Christians aren't to investigate other gods and be involved with other gods. We don't need any other god. We have the, the way, the truth, and the life. He then told them to live all their life for God, to enter into God's promises in the way they mourned, in the way they ate, in the way they gave. He talked to them about what real love is, agape love in action, giving when it doesn't make sense. He, talked to them to, he told them to remember all that God had done for them. You know, when we take communion, when we have times of fellowship and worship, we didn't remember as we are going to coming up Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday's coming. And it's a good time for us to remember all that God has done for us. We're not to lose sight of that. He then talked about one true source of wisdom by being daily in the Word. He said, whoever the new king is, whoever the new king is that comes into the land, you know what? He needs, to be, he needs to hand write out the Word of God. I like that. Can you imagine if every elected official in the United States had to write out the Bible before they could start office? Okay, here, you're elected, now go sit in that room and write the Bible word for word in pen until you're done. You know what, we'd have some officials getting saved, wouldn't we? They were writing out the word of God, it would be transforming their life. And he told them that the king that you elect, he's going to have the word of God by his hand. And he needs to consult it every single day. And then in chapter 18, he talked about how to have a heavenly focus. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you invest in is where your priorities will be. To walk not in the counsel of the ungodly and to honor the word of God. To check everything in the light of scripture. So we come to chapter 19 after all of that. He's continuing on in preparation for them to go into the land of promise. And he's going to talk about something that you might initially think, what has this got to do with me? He's setting up the criminal justice system. Okay, that sounds really thrilling, right? Can I leave now? There's probably something on TV, right? But the criminal justice system, do you think they needed one? You got three million people. Do you think there might be some problems? So these three million people are going into the land of promise, but they're going to be surrounded by ungodly people and idol worshipers. And there's going to be problems, and there needs to be some standards, some rules of law. 
And in this chapter, God's going to establish these additional laws and a criminal justice system so when they enter into the land of promise, it, they may continue to walk with the Lord. Because even though the people of Israel were greatly blessed, and they had the Lord God as a king, and a wonderful land, and a wonderful home, and a holy law for their guide, yet they faced some of the very same problems we face in society today. The sinful human nature of man being what it is, means that nations will always have to deal with man's inhumanity against man. You know, we, we, men are sinful, men are prideful, men are self-centered, and even godly men are going to struggle with that. And he says, as you go into the land, some will be walking with God and some won't. And there needed to be criminal justice system. Because the heart of every problem is still the problem of the heart. It's our heart that shows in our actions. So laws are necessary to bring order to society, to restrain evil, and to help control behavior. I've had people say you can't legislate morality, right? I've heard that. But you, can, you sure can't punish immorality, can't you? I'm glad that we have laws. I'm glad that, can you imagine what a lawless society, we're all, we're, we're so close to it sometimes, but aren't you glad there's a, you know, we don't like it necessarily, but I'm glad there's a speed limit. I'm glad there's stop signs. How about you? I, you know, we don't like it when it makes us late for work, but we're really glad they're there so no one crashes into our car going 90. And so God is establishing these laws for the protection of his people that he loves. In tonight's chapter, God outlines a system of justice to ensure that his people were treated fairly and that punishment should always fit the crime. Tonight we're going to look at the differentiation between manslaughter, manslaughter and murder. Where did manslaughter come from? It came from the Bible. It's biblical. We're going to see it. It came from tonight's chapter. We're going to see laws concerning private property and a standard set for establishing acceptable evidence. And again, these are laws that are still in place today. And again, at first glance, you might say, that sounds great for establishing a, a legal system, but what in the world has that got to do with my spiritual walk with God today? What has manslaughter got to do with me? But as we're going to see, it does have a lot to do with our walk today. Because while the, it's true that much of our criminal justice system today is still founded on these words, the chapter is filled with great application. So let's begin taking a look at a a chapter I entitled, Godly Justice. Godly Justice. And we're going to see the cities of refuge, a place where man could run and to escape the blood avenger, to receive fair treatment. We're going to see property laws with a neighbor's landmark, and then we're going to see a standard being established for acceptable evidence. And these things will each have great application for our lives, I promise. Okay? Let's begin in verse 1, looking at godly justice, looking first at cities of refuge. Now look what it says here. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now one of the things I love right off the bat, he says, when the Lord your God has. When God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. Amen? It says when the Lord, not if the Lord your God does, or when he might, it says when the Lord your God has. And when we read the Bible, we need to look at it that way. We need to realize that every word in the Bible is as good as done. When you read future prophecies, we need to understand and believe that they are as good as done. So the, the text begins with the surety of God's promises. They've not entered the land yet. 
But in God's eyes, they're dwelling in the land. The enemies have been defeated. They're dwelling in their cities of houses. The seven nations of Canaan that would, would all be destroyed and just judgment upon their occult practices and demonic idol worship would all have taken place. God saw the future. Now we talked about this last week or two weeks ago when I was here, that in the land there were people sacrificing to false gods, astrology, sorcery, drug use, witchcraft, rebellion against the true God produces righteous judgment. So they were going to come into the land, and you might say, and people say this all the time, I had a guy call me this week, and, they, and I know you've heard this, the God of the Old Testament seems so much harder than the God of the New Testament. You ever heard that before? How come the God of the Old Testament is just wiping people out all the time, and the God of the New, uh, God of New Testament, you know, Jesus comes and he suffers and dies so he might have eternal life? What we need to understand first is that the Old Testament covers a period of 4,000 years. The New Testament covers a period of less than 100 years. The Old Testament, we see rebellion after rebellion and God's mercy and God's mercy and God's mercy and God's mercy, sometimes for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then God's righteous judgment. In the New Testament, most of it, the Gospels, surround just three years of Jesus' life. And so while we look, and we look at the Old Testament in a long expanse of time, we need to see that God is a righteous judge. He shows mercy for a great deal of time, but eventually righteous judgment will come. You get to Revelation in the New Testament, and there's more heavy-duty judgment there than all the books of the Bible combined. Amen? Amen? And that comes, what? After a long period of grace and mercy and opportunity to turn to the Lord. Some people are going to say, well, they're going into the land of Canaan, and they're going to wipe out all the people. That just doesn't seem right. But the people of Canaan were involved in sorcery and witchcraft and idol worship and immorality. And God had given them opportunity after opportunity and they rejected God and they continued on in their way of life and now righteous judgment is going to come. God's grace does not equate to God's permission. Amen? Sometimes we think, oh man, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been getting away with it. No, God's being gracious, but you need to repent and turn back to the Lord. Amen? Don't, don't equate, well, I've gotten away with it, so it must be okay with God. And then he says there, separate three cities for yourself in the midst of the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, if you were here when, I when we talked through Numbers, in Numbers 35, he talks there of cities of refuge. And what exactly were these cities of refuge? Why did they need these cities? Well, you got to understand, they didn't have any police force back then. They didn't have any, any kind of chief or patrolman. So families kept law. And how do they keep the law? Well, Genesis said, well, whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So there was no law enforcement, so the next of kin was responsible to carry out the judgment. So somebody came and killed a family member of yours. There was a person, as we'll see here in a, in a moment, called the blood avenger. And he was called and commanded to go out and bring vengeance for the blood that had been shed. Now, what happens if it happens by accident? Well, again, this is you know, eye for an eye, as the Bible talks about. And while it's effective to deterrent for murder, the system had flaws. Because what if the death came by accident? What if, it, it, what if two guys go out, and we're going to see it in a few verses, and they're chopping down a tree? And they're chopping down a tree. And one guy swings and his axe handle breaks and the head of the axe goes across. It hits the guy in the chest and he falls over and he dies. 
Now, guess what's going to happen? The blood avenger of his family doesn't, may not necessarily take the time to find out what happened, and this guy's going to die. And so God had established these cities of refuge or places that they could run to, places of safety, places where the accused could run for protection and receive a fair trial. Again, no police force, no court system like we have today. So locating and prosecuting of criminals was left up primarily to the elders and the judges. Now, you know what? There's some neat things about this system because you didn't need bail back then. You know why? People ran to the city of refuge. If you knew that if you're walking through the street and anybody in his family saw you, they were going to grab you and take you to the blood avenger and you were going to die, they ran to the you know, police station, if you will. I'll be safe down there. I'm going. So there was no bail. You didn't have to worry about it. They said, hey, this has been an accident. I want a fair trial. I'm going to run to the city of refuge. Moses had already established three cities for those who had decided. Remember the story that two and a half of the tribes didn't go into the land of promise? Remember that? They said the grass is green over here. It looks pretty good. That's a type of us being satisfied with less than God's highest. Hey, the grass is green out here. There's giants in the land over there. I just want to stay here. You know, I don't want to have to deal with persecution and trials. I just want to be on the cruise ship to heaven. I'll stay right here. I don't want to have to go face the enemy. And they missed out on God's highest. But it would be Joshua's duty when they went into the land. So it says there, three cities in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The cities would be Kadesh, which is in Galilee, Shechem, and Hebron. And they were placed in such a way, if you look at a map of Israel, they were placed in such a way that you could get to them quickly and you could get from any place, you could get to one of these cities without having to climb a mountain, cross a river, or run a great distance. Now, it may not sound like a big deal to you, but if someone's chasing you, wanting you to die, it's good that it's close by. Amen? So he said, I want you to place these cities of refuge in the midst of your land. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide in three parts the territory of your land which the Lord is giving you to inherit that a manslayer may flee there. Now, again, you, you shall prepare roads, make level ground, make fast travel, make easy access to the city of refuge. Roads were to be kept in good repair and clearly marked that any manslayer may flee there. Now, manslayer is where we get the word manslaughter. And... What does it mean? It means guilty of death by accident. It's not premeditated. It was something that happened. Again, it wasn't lying in wait. Now again, do you think there's significance that God tells them, I want you to put these three cities that they're easy to get to, and I want you to build roads to them, and I want you to make the road level, and I want you to make it so the guy can get there quickly. According to Jewish tradition, that they would literally have all the cities of refuge well marked on every road. So if a guy's out in the middle of nowhere and he accidentally kills somebody, look up and run to the road and there's the thing. And he, man, he's booking it immediately to the city of refuge. And you might think, okay, well that's great, but what in the world has that got to do with my life? We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 4 and 5. And this is the case of a manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hatred not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with an axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle, and the strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He shall flee to one of these cities and live. Okay, 
Now, what do we see the difference between murder and manslaughter? These are still used in our justice system today, and they came from Deuteronomy 19. What are the keys? It must be unintentional. It must have had no hatred in the past or no motive to kill him. And so it was an accident. But again, upon discovering his death, the family would want to track him down and kill him. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. So he shall run to these cities and live, it says. So it doesn't say he shall dawdle to these cities. It says he shall flee. Quickly run to the city of refuge. A place of safety. A place where he'd be given a fair trial. And we're going to link this to your life in just a moment, I promise. Verse 6. Lest the avenger of blood. Now again, it was a family member who was required to track down the killer and bring vengeance. Now I want to make this real clear. This was not instituted by God, but still has a reality today in the Middle East. We've seen things on TV even now in the Middle East where a, a young woman will be raped and somebody in her family will go and kill the person who did it. And they won't prosecute them. Even today, the blood avenger within the family. And while his anger is hot at the death of his family member, asking no questions, he may strike and kill the man out of vengeance. Because the way is long, the distance is too far to the city of refuge. Look what it says here. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he is not deserving of death, since he has not hated the victim in time past. Again, no one was to be very far away. If you killed somebody, you know, if an accident happened, there needed to be a place of safety you could run to, a place you could get to quickly, and it's something that could impact everybody because nobody was above accidental death. The roads were clearly marked, they were well maintained, no river to cross over, no mountain to climb, level ground, close by, all meant a lot again when you were being traced, chased down by the Avenger. Now what has that got to do with you? Okay, Pastor Dave, that sounds great. So the manslaughter guy accidentally kills somebody and he's got a place to run to that's on level ground and it's clearly marked. That's wonderful. Good for him. That was, you know, thousands of years ago. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, the Bible in the New Testament in Hebrew says that Jesus is our refuge. Amen? And the city of refuge is a picture of Jesus. Why? Because salvation is always within reach. It's always near to you. It is clearly marked out. The avenger of blood is a picture of Satan. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we, Jesus is not far away. Salvation is not far away. In Romans 10, 8 and 9 it says this. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is a clear picture for you and I that we are all guilty like the manslayer, aren't we? Aren't we all guilty? Are you guys awake or what? Okay. We're all sinners, amen? And we're all guilty. And we're all deserving. And the avenger wants to come and get a hold of us. But praise God that Jesus is our refuge, and He's nearby, and it doesn't take work to to be saved. It doesn't say climb up the mountain and chop down 47 trees and then run to the city of refuge. Does it say that? It says go quickly, and the ground will be level, and it will be nearby. And it's a picture for us that salvation is near. 
All we have to do is come before the Lord with a confessing mouth and a broken heart over our sin. In Numbers 35, these cities were open to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. That's because salvation is available to all of mankind. Amen? Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, as it says in the New Testament, salvation is available to all of mankind. And praise God for that. It was the only place he could run, by the way. He didn't have the city of refuge or the mound of refuge. You know, the street of refuge. It was the city, there it is. You go to the city of refuge. Why is that significant? Because in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Amen? And so it wasn't, well, I think I should try a different plan. I've got a different way of getting there. I've got a different mode. No, he said, build the cities of refuge, make them nearby, make them easy to approach, but it's the only place for safety for one being pursued. And it was protection with boundaries, as we're going to see here in a minute, that if you went to the city of refuge, what had to happen is you could go there, and as soon as you entered in, you were safe. And we're going to see in a moment, you'd be brought before the judges, and they would judge whether or not you were guilty. If you were guilty, they would deliver you over to the enemy. Now, that's one difference. We all come guilty, amen? And the difference for us is that we've been saved. And so the city of refuge was protection as long as they stayed inside of it. If they went outside, they, were, they would be put to death. Those found not guilty of murder would be safe as long as they remained in the city of refuge. If they left, the avenger could kill them. Isn't that true for us? Our safety is in Christ and nowhere else, amen? And if we walk in disobedience to God, while we're still, if we've truly been born again, consequences will still happen. We will still deal with the avenger, the roaring lion who, who seeks him, seeking whom he may devour, the enemy. Again, we've triumphed over sin and death, we're going to heaven. Now guess when they got to leave, Numbers 35, guess when they got to leave the city of refuge? They had to stay there until something happened. The high priest had to die. Now this is bizarre if you think about it. You've got to stay in the city, and you can't leave. If you do, you're going to die until the high priest dies. So when the high priest died, which should have been a sad thing, there was a lot of happy people. Really, he's sick? Really? Really, how sick, you know? I've been here 12 years. I haven't seen my family, man. That, you know, hey, how old is he anyway? Can you imagine you got to the city of refuge, and they said you could stay? So how old is the high priest? Oh, he's 80. Oh, that's good. Well, that's wonderful, right? Now, you look at that and you think, okay, what in the world has that got to do with us? The high priest died, and when that happened, he could leave the city of refuge, and the blood avenger could no longer touch him. Who is our great high priest? Jesus Christ. And when he suffered and died on the cross, we've been set free from sin and death, and the blood avenger can't touch us anymore. Amen? What a clear picture in the Old Testament of our Savior. Again, if we just read it, you think, oh, what's this got to do with me? It's got everything to do with us. Our safety is in Christ. He is our refuge. He's available. He's nearby. There's no work required. We simply come to Him. And the blood avenger is the accuser of the brethren. Verse 7, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for yourself. This was to be done immediately upon their coming into the land. They were not to put it off. And you know what? You and I are not to put off our coming to Jesus Christ either. 
Amen? Today is the day of salvation. It always cracks me up when people say to me, well, I've got a little more life, life to live, and then I'll think about give my life to Jesus. I've got, you know, got some more puking to do. I got a few more, you know, sexually transmitted diseases I want to have, and I would love to see my marriage fall apart, and my, my kids struggling. I mean, I want a little more of that before I have a life of joy and peace and comfort. It's the dumbest thing you ever heard, right? But you hear people say that because they think coming to the Lord is, okay, I'm going to put on the holy handcuffs now. Can't do anything fun. Christianity is a black robe with a wheelbarrow full of rules. And heaven at the end. Oh, you know, right? Hit myself with the board every three feet. You know? Oh, proving I love God, right? No. He said, when you get into the city, you don't mess around. You build the city refuge immediately. Because I don't want one person not to have a place where they can turn to. I don't want one person to be left without a place that they can find safety. And again, you and I are not to put off salvation, put off our relationship with Christ. It is to be the priority of life. Verse 8. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as He swore to your fathers and gives you the land which He promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments to do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to walk always in His ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So as they walked in obedience to God's command, they would experience all God had for them. Sometimes we wonder why our life isn't more fruitful. I have people say that to me. You know, my marriage, we're, I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. How much time are you spending with the Lord? How much time are you spending in prayer? How, how, how faithful are you to use the gifts God's given you and walk in obedience to the Lord? Again, we're saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, but a Christian's life should be producing fruit. Amen? People should be able to look at our lives and see Jesus all over it. If they followed you around with a video camera for a week and videotaped everything you said and did and put you on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would they see you opening your Bible every day? Would they see you being in prayer? Would they see you sharing your faith? Or would they say, oh, they're just like the world, fitting right in? Another undercover Christian, right? Another day at work and nobody found out I'm saved. That's great, right? That's not God's heart. And he said, you keep my commandments, you walk in my ways. They would experience all God had for them. Their territory would grow. And as Israel expanded, they were to put in more cities of refuge so that safety would never be far away from anybody. What a great God we serve, amen? They're always nearby. Not, you know, traveling 5,000 miles to Mecca and crawling on my knees up a hill over glass to prove to God I love him, but simply turning to him and saying, forgive me, and he will. What a great God we serve. And then it says in verse 10, here's why. Lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. He says, if you do not prepare these cities of refuge, then innocent people are going to die. Innocent people are going to die, and the blood will be upon you. If a city of refuge was too far to be readily reached by a manslayer, it did him no good. The avenger of blood would overtake him before he could reach the city of refuge, and the bloodshed would be upon those who had not provided the place for them to run to. They would bear the guilt of innocent bloodshed. Now what would a New Testament application of that be? In Acts 20, when Paul was speaking, the first pastor's conference, 
when he was speaking to the elders at Ephesus. He has a few moments with these guys. He's heading off to Jerusalem. He stops. He pulls the elders in. They, they drop everything they're doing. They come to talk to, to Paul. And he says to them, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. How are we innocent of the bloodshed of those around us? They would be innocent if they built cities of refuge, a place for them to run to. We're innocent if we are faithful to share the word of God with a lost and dying world. I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The promised land, the cities of refuge were a type of Christ. Today the written word, Jesus, the word became flesh. That's where we turn people to. They would run to the city of refuge, we take them to the word. Amen? Because that's where we see Jesus clearly. The city of refuge is a picture of Christ. The word of God reveals Christ. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word, John 1, 1. And the word was God, and the word was with God. And John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the word? Jesus. And so we take people to the word to bring them to the Lord. Innocent of the blood of all men, as we deliver to them the whole counsel of God. You know what, as your pastor, I take that very seriously. That's a verse that's underlined in my Bible 20 times over. Why do we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book? Because if I got up and taught a topic every week, I could be here a hundred years and I would never be able to tell you that I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. My heart is that if the Lord tarries, we're going to keep going right through the word till we look at the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen? Every single word of it. Verse 11. But if anyone hates his neighbor, now this is murder, and lies in wait for him, and rises against him, and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send him and bring him from there, and deliver him out to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Now here's the difference between manslaughter and murder. It says there he has hatred in his heart. Motive. Where does that come from in the legal system today? It comes from Deuteronomy 19. He lies in wait. We call that what today? Premeditation. And he strikes him mortally. He brings harm on purpose. So the Bible makes a clear distinction between killing and murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Okay? So he flees to one of those cities. Now you can imagine that would happen, right? Somebody, somebody goes, and he kills somebody on purpose, and then he thinks, uh-oh, venture of blood. I'm going to run to the city of refuge. I'll be safe there. Isn't that what we see in the world today? People kill people, and they just go hire a lawyer right? I'm going to flee to the city of refuge, and I'm going to get away with this. The difference here is they went before the judges and the elders of the church, and God gave them wisdom, and they saw right through their lie. And, you know, you'd have ex-football players who'd be dead instead of playing golf. That went right by some of you. O.J. Simpson, okay? You know, some of these guys who were, who were guilty, they'd get away. They didn't back then. And he said, he who flees to one of these cities, it's easy to imagine again, they would run there seeking to, you know, the manslayer came wanting truth. I want justice. I want truth. I want to be able to come, and I want you to look at my case, and I want you to deal truthfully with me. The murderer just wanted to get away with his crime. And you know what? Do you think God knows the difference? Do you think God knows the difference that many today come to the Lord, but their hearts aren't repentant? Does God know? Does God know when someone comes broken over their sin, truly wanting to be forgiven, 
But then there's others who only come to God seeking deliverance from their con- the consequences of their sin. They're not broken over sin, but only afraid after being caught. They want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. I've had people, you know, crisis Christianity, I call it. You know, I'm in the midst of a difficulty, and they come to you, and they want you to pray and please, and they're, you know, they're broken because of consequences. But when the consequences go away, all of a sudden they don't need God anymore. You ever seen that? And what he's talking about here is, look, we're going to see right through that. When the murderer comes, the elders of the city, the wise men, the court of judges, would investigate his case, and if he was found guilty of murder, they were to deliver him back into the hands of the avenger. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be, shall be shed. The Bible teaches capital punishment. Period. Oh, Pastor Dave, come on now. We should not... What does the Bible say? What have we been reading? Now, we're going to talk about that more in a moment, but while capital punishment may not restrain every would-be murderer from taking a life, it does magnify the preciousness of human life as well as honoring of the law. Well, no, if they killed, if they had capital punishment, it won't stop people from murder. Yes, it will, because the Bible says it will. It won't stop everybody, but it will stop some people. But the reality today is that sin has no consequences in some cases, and refuge is not found in Christ. These people, you know, are just wanting to get over on their sin. I did something wrong, I want to get over. I, I don't want forgiveness, I just want to get away with it. But sin does have consequences, and refuge is found only in Christ. And we must flee to Him in brokenness and repentant hearts. But there is no refuge in Christ for unrepentant sinners who continue on in their sinful behavior. Let me say that again. People who come to God and are not truly repentant, God knows. Why is it that they have crusades and thousands come forward and then you check on them a year later and less than 10% of them are really walking with God? And I want to say this real clear. If you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and your life didn't change, you've not been born again. Amen? Because if you've been born again, everything changes. The word repent means I was going this way and now I'm going this way. I've done a 180 in my life. Everything has changed. I'm a new creation in Christ. Not I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I got the get out of hell free card in my wallet and I'm living like I always have. And so the murder would come and he would think he was getting over and they would see right through to his heart and they would send him back out to face judgment. Now that seems harsh. No, it's righteous judgment. What do we all deserve? Every one of us. We, differ, we all deserve death. And that's the first thing we must understand is I'm deserving of death because I'm a sinner saved by grace. There's no refuge in Christ for unrepentant sinners. Those who flee to Christ from their sins shall be safe in Him. But those who expect to be sheltered by Him in their sins, God will by no means shelter them. Some will come to God in their sin and say, hey, it's cool, I want to live my life. I went to a lady in Southern California one time who looked right at me and said, I don't believe in God, but I know that The Bible teaches that if there is one, he has to forgive me. I'm going to wait a minute. There can be no forgiveness until there's repentance. Amen? And I must see that I'm a sinner for I'll see a need for a Savior. And so this system was set up so those who came with wrong motives, seeking only to get away with their, their hatred and their wickedness and their sinful behavior, that the consequences would fit the crime. 
Now, some people will say, if God loves me, why did he let this happen to me? We should not expect him to shelter us from sin's consequences. He will forgive us for our sin, but we should not expect him to shelter us from its consequences. Sometimes he will, but we should not expect that. I've had people look across the table at me and tell me, why in the world did God let me get pregnant? Hello? Was he in the room? I mean, God let you? Why are you sleeping with your boyfriend? Well, yeah, but if God loved me, he would have... He's not going to bless your sin, amen? Your sin's going to have consequences. I can't believe the IRS is auditing me and they're taking my business away. Why did you cheat on your taxes? If God loved me, he wouldn't be getting, letting me be audited. No, if you loved God, you wouldn't be cheating on your taxes. Amen? And, you know, we don't want to hear that. We want to, oh, man, I want to run to the city of refuge because I've been caught. I'm totally nail busted. If you've got kids, you know what this is like, right? They break everything. Oh, was it me? I didn't, I don't, you know, right? I mean, they're holding the broken lamp in their hand. I don't, it was someone else. And we do the same thing with God. We're totally busted, and we want to run to him and say, okay, God, fix it now. Not re- now, that should be our heart when we understand our sin and we're repentant. That's a good thing to do, amen? Run to the Lord. Lord, forgive me. I'm broken over my sin. Please, Lord, I want to get right with you. Not, Lord, will you condone my behavior and let me continue on in it? And that's what was happening here. And when that happened, they saw right through to their heart, and they were sent out of the city to have righteous judgment upon them. Verse 13. You shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. Do not pity the murderer, but carry out God's divine design upon him. Now, a lot of Christians struggle with this. I get a lot of people asking me, Pastor Dave, how can you be for the death penalty? I said, look, God is for the death penalty. Did I write the book? I'm just reading it to you, amen? If you've got a problem with it, take it up with the author. It should bring us to the place of being broken over our sin, not trying to see how much we can get away with it. Remove the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. Remove the unrepentant sin that it may go well with you. And I want to tell you something again. You guys know, if you know me at all, I love you guys. And I believe our God, and I know our God is a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that we should take sin lightly. Amen? Just because God is gracious doesn't mean that we should say, well, it's all good for me to sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. It's all good if I'm doing drugs. It's all good if I'm doing this. It's all good if I'm doing that. It's okay if I'm looking at pornography on the internet. It's okay if I'm cheating on my taxes. It's okay if I'm lusting in my heart after a woman at work. It's okay if I'm showing up for work late and leaving early and getting paid for a full day. It's okay if I'm doing those. No, it's not okay. Sin's not okay, amen? Because it separates us from God, and it breaks his heart. And sadly today, too many are concerned more about the life of the guilty than the blood of the innocent. People are protesting for the mass murderer, forgetting about all those he killed. Is that true or not? And let me ask you this. The ultimate picture of innocent blood that has defiled this nation is the countless murders of innocent babies. Amen? Amen? Most specifically, abortion is murder, period. Under any circumstances, it's murder. Now, I want to say again, no doubt in a room this size there are a few women that have had abortions. Can I tell you that God will forgive you and has forgiven you, amen? He's forgiven you. I don't want you to walk, he's forgiven you. He's a God of grace and mercy. But going forward, 
It is never acceptable in the life of a Christian, ever. If you don't want the baby, Lynette and I will take it right now. That's me. You got my word. And there are probably 500 other people standing in line in our church that will take it. Amen? So we are to flee from sin, not seek God to, to cover it up for us. Let's finish off. Verse 14. Not only in the area of the city of refuge and uh, a place where you could run for fair treatment, escape the avenger of blood, a picture of Jesus. But look at the personal property. Just one verse on that. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and your inheritance, which you will inherit, and the land the Lord of your God is giving you to possess. Now, what does this mean? When they first came into the city, after Israel conquered the land of Canaan, each tribe was assigned a territory, and their borders were accurately, accurately described. Joshua and Eleazar, the high priest, and the heads of the 12 tribes cast lots within the, the cities, within the area, and the, the, each of the tribes set out their land. Now, two and a half of the tribes were on the other side, and nine and a half tribes were within. And everybody was expected to honor these landmarks going forward. Because all you had to do was move a landmark, and what were you doing? You're stealing somebody's land. Can you imagine just going out at your house and just like moving your fence over 20 feet? I'm thinking my, I like, I think my backyard would look sweet, a lot bigger, so I'm just going to right? Well, that's kind of what he's saying. Don't move the landmark because you're stealing someone else's property. And it was through their land that they had income. Hosea 5.10 says, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Moving the stones, the landmark meant stealing from someone and God would bring punishment upon that. Now, what is the application? That we're not to take that which doesn't belong to us. We're not to steal. But also, I believe it points to the fact that we should learn from the generation that's gone before us. Instead of moving that which has been set up by the previous generation, may we learn from it. You know, I grew up in a Christian home with a godly dad, and I know his heart would be that I would be closer to God than he was. You know what? I want my kids to be closer to God than I am. I want them to learn from the experiences I've had. I want them to build on my relationship with the Lord. It's their own individual relationship, but I want them to build on it. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Let's learn from the generations that have gone before us. There's a saying called standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. And he says, don't move that landmark. Now lastly, we're going to look at a standard for establishing acceptable evidence. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established that's still law today isn't it why because one witness there's problems with one witness why if they lie how do you know if they're lying but i believe even more than that one witness can be wrong not on purpose how many of you have ever said something you thought was absolutely true and then found out later you were wrong you weren't lying. You thought you were telling the truth. And then you find out later, oh, whoops. This happened to my son just last week. His baseball practice had been at 2.30 every, every week. And my younger son, we're at his practice. I'm getting ready to take him. It's 2 o'clock. He goes, no, Dad, my practice is at 4 today. I'm like, are you sure? He's got his, yeah, man, I talked to the coach, 4 o'clock. Son, he said at the beginning of the year, every practice. No, he told me, 4 o'clock. Okay. So at 4 o'clock, I drive him over to the field. And his entire team is leaving. <laughs> I said, son, are you sure? I'm positive, Dad, 4 o'clock. Now, was he lying? No. Was he mistaken? Yeah. Was he bummed? Yeah. 
And you know, the same thing can happen. That's why we need to be careful not to just listen to the word of one person. Amen? One person could be sincere and sincerely wrong. We need to be careful to make sure that we hear by two or three witnesses so that we don't you know, look at somebody, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? And, and two or three people repeating the same story is not two or three witnesses. Amen? I told so-and-so and he told so-and-so, let's all go tell him and I will all believe it, right? No. Two or three witnesses, not gossips. Amen? Verse 16 and 17. If a false witness arises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and judges who serve in those days. So when two witnesses came forward with conflicting stories, the judges acted as God, God's representatives, and to lie to them was to lie to God. How serious was it? Verse 18. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, and you shall put the evil away from among you. So if you went and said that you saw somebody kill somebody when it was really an accident, and you saw that it was, you say it was murder, and you're a liar, guess what they did to you? They killed you instead. Do you think people might be a little more careful about what they said on the, at trial? Did you see him? Well, I, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> Somebody looked like him, could have been him. I don't, I'm not sure, right? And that's what was happening. He's establishing a losses. Look, if you're going to make a statement, you better be right. You better be right. And, look at, and if they brought false accusations, then the false witnesses received the punishment. At the trial of Jesus, do you know that, that many false witnesses rose up against him? False testimony was demonstrated by their confused and contradictory testimony. Under Jewish law, they should have been put to death. But what happened? Jesus died in their place. Amen? Out of love for us. Then he says, you shall put the evil away from among you. An often used phrase in this book. The children of Israel would have no fellowship with evil because bad company corrupts good morals. Last two verses. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Now, if some guy was falsely witnessing, and you saw him get dragged off the testimony stand and taken out front and stoned to death, do you think you might be a little more careful when it's your turn? Ooh, I think, ooh, remember? Oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. Be real careful. I know in countries where, you know, I know it's still true today, but there are countries where if you stole something, they cut your hand off. Guess what? Not a lot of thieves. You find a, there's a wallet, they say wallets lay in the street for a week. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not touching that. Somebody might find, I'll lose my arm. I'm not having that, right? If the consequences are heavy, we're real careful. What consequences could be heavier than spending eternity separated from Almighty God? How much more should we have a burden for those who don't know God? How much more should we be faithful in our walk before the Lord? Many modern people doubt that punishment of others is effective deterrent to crime, but again, the Bible here says, those who remain shall hear and fear. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Last verse, you shall, it says, your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, isn't this an often quoted verse? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And usually people are saying it to make sure they get even, Right? That's not what this verse is about at all. You know what this verse is about? It's making sure that whatever evil has happened against another, that the punishment would fit the crime. 
It wasn't a, what's the word? It wasn't a, a way of saying you can have vengeance, go get it. But what it was instead was to make sure that the punishment fit the grind. Because if someone blacks my eye, I want to black two, right? If someone takes, you know, hits my car, I want, to, I want to crush their house, right? I mean, that's vengeance. He's saying, no, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot. Someone got knocks your tooth out, you want to break both of his legs. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, make sure the punishment is equal to the crime. This was for restraint, not for vengeance. And it's often misquoted. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Again, some misinterpret this as God's requirement to judge harshly. On the contrary, it's God's command that punishment should fit the crime because our human tendency is to want to do more than is right. So in closing, godly justice, cities of refuge, a place a man could run to to escape the blood avenger as you and I can run to Jesus. Amen? So the city of refuge, praise God, a picture of Jesus Christ. The neighbor's landmark was that they would not steal one another's property. It isn't wise to ignore the standard of those who've gone before us and praise God for the standard they've set for us. And then lastly, a standard for establishing acceptable evidence by two or three witnesses should teach us to be slow to judge others. Be slow to judge others. I had people tell me things about people and I go, you know what, I don't believe that. I'm not saying you're lying, I just don't believe that. Why? Because I know that person and one witness isn't enough for me. I'm just, I'm just not going to believe that. And you know what else? It should teach us to speak the truth in love. Because remember, if they spoke falsely against somebody, then the same punishment came to them. Now, I want to say this. We need to come to the Lord with repentant hearts, knowing that He is our refuge. Amen? And that He will always forgive us if we come to Him with hearts broken before Him. He's not far away. The way is marked very clearly. It's in your hands right now. Jesus is the way. And we have easy access to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even as we look at the establishing of the criminal justice system, we see your hand all over it and applications for our lives today. Help us, Father. I pray if there's anybody here right now that feels like they're running from the blood avenger, they've been outside of your will, been doing things their own way, Lord, I pray they'd come to a place of repentance and realize, Lord, that you are always nearby. Your arms are always open wide. You so desire to forgive us, to love us, to restore us to right fellowship. We thank you that you are Abba Father, your Daddy. We can crawl up into your lap and have intimate fellowship with you. So Lord, we love you. We praise you, Lord. May we reflect you to a world that so desperately needs you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.